Hello and welcome to the M6 podcast. My name is Moritz Kraska. I'm your host. And today's topic of discussion is dieting psychology. For that, I'm joined by Dr. Mike Isratel. And if you're not familiar with Mike, I'm going to briefly introduce him and what he does. Mike is the co-founder of Renaissance Periodization, a company that specializes in coaching, physique, and strength athletes. Um, they provide informational and educational content for physique, strength training, sports-specific training, and dieting. They have an app nowadays that can help you with your dieting process. And Mike is just very present on a bunch of podcasts. He gives seminars all over the world and is one of the main uh, characters or personas, I would say, in the muscle hypertrophy world. We talked about dieting psychology um, and the challenges and hurdles you can uh, encounter along the way. Uh, for one, in the dieting process, as in like hypocaloric dieting, and we also talked about what you can expect expect um, to go through mentally and psychologically in uh, the massing phase. Um, those two are very different in, in how you set them up, but and you also might find very different um, difficulties in them, but they might be similarly or equally challenging to some degree. And we talked about how you can um, approach this, how you can minimize the, the negative effects, and went into some other topics as well. Um, if anything is unclear, if uh, you don't get some of the, the jargon uh, that we were talking or some of the terminology you're not familiar with, um, hit me up, send me a message on, on uh, my social media, which is um, m6 underscore coaching on Instagram. I'll try to get back to you as soon as I can. And if you have any feedback, um, constructive criticism, anything like that, uh, feel free to hit me up or drop a comment on any platform. I'm always glad for that. This is the second episode I'm recording, so things are far from perfect, but I'm trying to improve on all the um, faults and uh, little issues I have right now. And if you can support me in any way um, on that journey, I'd be very, very happy. So, um, today's topic of discussion, like I said before, is dieting psychology. And without further ado, here's Mike Isratel on dieting psychology. So, Mike, um, if you are being introduced to someone at a dinner party, and that person asks you what you do for a living, what do you tell them? Yeah, it's funny. That's actually happened before. I usually tell them I'm unemployed, and that because my wife is a doctor, I get to stay at home. And my wife usually hits me after I say that. Uh, but uh, then, you know, after the jokes are done, I say that I'm a sports scientist. And that doesn't really add any clarity to the situation because nobody knows what that is. Um, when I used to be a college professor, it was much easier because I could say I'm a professor. And that, you know, everyone knows that someone who teaches. But now it's a difficult, still difficult. So it's actually really a funny way to start the podcast. I uh, still, you know, sports scientists are quite mysterious. But for those uh, folks watching this at home, uh, what that really means is I actually do sit on my couch all day, but I do work, uh, and uh, the work is largely involved in writing books, developing ideas, creating lectures, 
And uh, much of my work actually involves in uh, uh, app design for the RP Diet app and future apps that we're working on developing currently. So I do a lot of uh, a lot of mathematics actually when I sit at home and uh, create all kinds of relationships for computers to understand. So. Sounds fun, man. Cool. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like you have to come up with uh, different explanations at every dinner party you go to. Every dinner, you know, I go to a lot of dinner parties. That's really my just yeah, man. I look like it. I bet. All right, so um, people who follow you on social media, they're going to know that you've been dieting um, for a good while now, a couple weeks, months, uh, and you went over to a um, maintenance phase, and I think you plan on doing another diet uh, in some time. And could you just like tell us briefly where you're at and where you want to go with this um, these phases? Yeah, totally. So I've, I did a 15-week diet. Um, the original plan was to do a 20-week diet and compete in bodybuilding, um, but then the coronavirus canceled all the competitions. So then we did a 15-week diet. We ended it there, my training partner Charlie and I. And um, now I'm taking a roughly seven-week maintenance phase to really just drop diet fatigue and uh, get my body ready for a roughly 17-week diet is the plan to be competing in a bodybuilding show in late October. Um, so that's really the idea. And uh, the maintenance phase is getting a little bit of a, uh, it is it's technically like a hypercaloric phase, but only very, very mildly hypercaloric. So I shouldn't be gaining a whole lot of body fat. So I should be starting from a relatively lean place uh, from this diet and then going to a place that is uh, even, uh, even leaner. So I, I hope that this next diet is going to take me to places that I've never been before as far as body fat percentage. And I'm very, very willing and ready and excited to do what it takes. Cool. Sounds good. So you originally didn't have any um, diet breaks uh, planned for your for your diet to competition? No, because uh, the timing of the competition would have to be such that there wouldn't be a possibility to take breaks because I would need to get lean in a you know, quick enough manner to where we couldn't fit any breaks in. And I think right. a 20-week continuous fat loss phase, as long as you sort of approach it without rushing too fast, I think is the top end for how uh, one continuous phase without diet breaks. I don't think it's uh, much after 20 weeks is a very good idea to do continuously, which is funny because a few folks asked me like, why did I do 15 weeks now and 17 weeks later? Why don't I just diet all the way through? And you know, that's kind of an insane proposition that I think is a universally bad idea. So I agree. I definitely yeah. agree. Um, cool. So that kind of um, leads us into the first topic I would like to talk about, or I would like to talk, uh, you let's talk about, uh, which is dieting psychology. And um, so kind of a broad question, but like if you were to prepare someone, a brief someone who is going to um, engage in a dieting phase and he doesn't really know what he's getting into, what would you um, point out to him what he has to be prepared for? What are things to consider? What are mind states he's most likely going to be in? What are psychological changes that are going to take place? Yeah, it's a good question. So I suppose I, I could ask you a question. Let's say we're pretending. Is this person starting a diet where they just want to get a little bit leaner? Or, or is this person starting a competitive diet? Or are they trying to get exotically lean? What do you think? Because there's, there's some very uh, different things I would ask and tell. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, it's good that you asked. Actually, uh, first, I would like to talk about the just getting a little bit leaner uh, scenario. And then maybe you can follow that up with uh, how you would approach that when sure. a first-time competitor would ask you about something like that. 
Sure, sure. So they're just a little bit leaner. Uh, what I would try to tell them, like you know, sort of, sort of assuming I'm not the one creating their diet and leading them along the way, they just sort of happen to, let's say, we're public transport and they start talking to me and they say, "Oh, I'm about to start a fat loss diet." What do you think? I think I would try to uh, get them to stigmatize it as little as possible. Try to get them to um, see it as not so special of a thing, uh, and at the same time implant a little bit of a reverence for some rigor. So essentially, what I would say is, look, like uh, that sounds great. You know, just make sure to stick to the basics and don't worry too much about like, you know, could, could you be losing more weight? Don't rush. Um, just you know, whatever diet you're following, follow it pretty well. And you're going to see some great results and just keep going. It's going to be awesome and easy, no problem, right? You just got to stay on this really like just really basic path and it's just going to happen for you. Like don't don't think like you have to try. You just, you know, eat the foods you're supposed to. Don't eat a lot of stuff you're not supposed to. And it's not going to happen overnight, but slowly and surely you're going to see great results. Because a lot of people when they start their diets, so there's a reason I say that even the tone of voice is important. A lot of people when they start diets, it's just this very perilous thing for them. They're like, oh my God, I'm dying. I'm going to die. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be super hard. And for most people, their first diet is just really not that hard. It's just a matter of sort of doing the right things. And not, it, it's like preparing someone for the first walk through a zoo. You know, you don't say like, look, don't go in the tiger exhibit. You're going to die. <laughs> like, you got to go out of your way to go to the tiger exhibit. You just say, walk around, look at the animals. And like, if, you know, just don't fall into any exhibits. But, but I promise it's not that hard. <laughs> uh, you want to pet the tigers up close, but just don't do that. And, and they walk through the zoo and everything's fine, right? So first diet. Uh, contest diet is when you have to go in and fight the tigers. <laughs> so it's a slightly different. Um, but, uh, you know, so contest diet is you say, listen, you are embarking on a very interesting journey where everything in your body and mind is going to tell you to stop and turn around and all the time, all the time, all the time. So what I want you to do is psychologically very much discount your inner voice as not being suggestive of uh, things that are a very good idea. You know, uh, it, it's a similar idea to... Um, uh, you know, the inner voice is wrong a lot about a lot of things. Let's say you're eating dinner and there's somebody across the, you know, across the a couple of tables and they have like this really big mole on their face, like just obvious, just giant mole. Like after age six, you understand you're not supposed to be staring at people because that's rude. Now your inner voice, even if you're 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years old, what does the inner voice tell you to do? It's like, oh my God, look at that mole. Like you just, just want to keep staring at him. I want to talk to the person. I want to ask him, why is that on your face? Modern cosmetic surgery is quite cheap. Why is it, is it meaning something, something to you, right? But that's all ridiculous, wildly impolite and just uncivilized. So we know not to inter or listen to our inner voices too much. Now that this thing is you don't block it out. You don't say, oh, no, 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 no. I don't even want to entertain these thoughts. Like it's okay to think to yourself when you're sitting there like, oh, that person has a big mole. I would like to look at it, but I'm also an adult, so I won't. That's okay. And it's going to come up every time. Like every now and again, you eat some food, you're going to look up and there's the mole's going to stare at you and you're going to like, oh, there it is still. Okay. Well, I still know I'm not supposed to be doing it. And it's going to be kind of tough. It's like tempting to like do the look. Same thing with the diet. It's going to, you know, every day you're going to want Pop-Tarts. Every day you're going to want cheeseburgers. And first of all, that's okay. It's fine. You can acknowledge that you do. But then, then you look at your diet food and you're like, I'm on a mission. This is temporary. That's a big one. Uh, it's not forever. You're not going to be eating diet food forever. You're not going to be uh, hungry forever do what it takes and when you become hungry and you become tired you become groggy listen to your body communicate to your coach because your coach can give you lots of great feedback on how much of that is so much that maybe more clean food needs to be added so on and so forth maybe a diet break but fundamentally your job is very simple it's to stick to the plan that is outlined i will say that i, I made actually an interesting realization uh in this last diet that i've sort of hinted at before there is a way in which massing is actually more difficult than dieting and here it is um Dieting fundamentally is the quest to not do things. 
which is almost always uh, easier than doing them. Like if someone said, like, here's a 200 kilogram stone to lift on this platform. If you do it, you win a million dollars. You'd be like, <laughs> I can't do that. Right. Versus if someone's like, OK, this like we're going to put you in a tank where like bugs are going to be like touching your legs. And all you have to do is not scream for five minutes. It's going to be weird. It's super fucked up. The bugs are down there. Just don't scream like Boy, is that an easier way to get a million dollars. And at some point, a lot of people cannot scream, but not, almost no one can lift a 200-kilogram stone. Just the same way massing versus cutting, if you are going to throw up and there's rice on your bowl that you still have to eat, you can try eating it. It's just going to come up again. And then you're done. But like dieting, you can be super hungry. All you have to do is not eat the cheap food that you're already maybe thinking about ordering. Just don't do it. And you're already winning. So in that sense, keeping that in mind can actually help someone on a fat loss diet. So I say, all you got to do is stick to the plan. And the plan's not that hard. You know, people say like cutting is hard. It's the stuff you want to do that you can't do that makes it hard. Not the stuff you have to do. Cardio is not that hard. Weight training I'd cut is tough. But, you know, once you get your first couple warm-up sets, it feels fine. And also you look super cool. So it's super easy to get motivated. And then not eating food isn't as much tough as it's just a pain in the ass. But it's one of those things that you picked a goal, do a good job, and sometimes it'll get tough. Talk to your coach and everything will be okay. Cool. I think you already answered like at least two of my uh, follow-up questions. <laughs> right. One would have been, if you had any learnings from your, from your last diet, um, different from your previous diets, uh, but you answered that already, um, which was really interesting. And I, from my own experience, can agree that um, massing can be definitely – a lot more challenging uh, mentally than um, dieting uh, for, for many reasons. You laid out um, some of them already. I think another one is like in dieting, you get almost an instant gratification for your, for your deficit. You know, might not be on a daily basis, but like weekly or bi-weekly, you're going to see some changes. So you don't have that if you mass for six plus months, You're like you don't have weekly or monthly even um, visual changes. So that's, yeah. Um, I was going to ask you, ask you actually the same question, like what, what uh, to prepare for if you go into a massing cycle or a um, just a, a, a building um, block where um, you, you um, consciously go into a calorie surplus for an extended yeah. period of time. So let's say a year plus mm. and you're new to it. You've kind of been fucking around with the weights a little bit. You're not really, you know not eating right, not getting enough protein, not enough calories, and then you, um, you start with it. So, and then like, what would you tell a person like that to prepare for? Yeah. So what I would say is that consistency beats uh, even the surplus. So I would say that consistently eating, you know, at least four high protein meals a day with plenty of other food and consistently weight training hard is the real basis of growth. And especially for someone who's sort of just been messing around with the weights, sort of a beginner, for them, it, it actually, they can gain in an isocaloric and even hypocaloric environment, but they can't gain in an environment in which there's not enough protein. And they absolutely can't gain in an environment in which they don't train um, requisitely. Like if they don't train enough, I mean, there's no, there's just no way that they're going to be able to grow. So what I like to say to folks just starting out is because they, they, you know, people think like, okay, I got to eat, eat, eat big. They eat big for a couple of days unsustainably, probably too many calories, but even if not, sometimes they eat all clean. So it's, it's not even it's, – it's the right amount of calories, but it's super difficult to eat like broccoli and white rice and chicken. And then they just burn out, and then for multiple days, they're doing who knows what. They'll say things like, 
well, man, my diet wasn't that great over the weekend. And like the kind of people that get jacked eventually, not great over the weekend means they had all the protein they needed, all the carbs they needed, but they ate a little bit too much cheat food. Like that's okay, but you're still going to get huge. You just got to diet off the fat a little bit more. But some people, when they mass, they'll have a bad weekend. They're like, oh, what did you do? They're like, well, I went to a music festival and I took ecstasy and I danced for 18 hours. And then my friends went to a diner to eat, but I was still a little high and really tired. So I had one French fry and then I fell asleep for 16 hours. And that was it. That was Sunday morning. And they're like, okay, well, you probably lost like a kilo of muscle. Good job. So it's one of these situations where consistency really is first. And there's sort of a relaxed approach of like, dude, lift weights, have fun and eat four square meals of high protein and plenty of calories per day. When you're a little bit less hungry, don't eat as much, but still eat the protein. When you're a bit more hungry, enjoy and eat a little junk food, eat a little bit of cheat food, keep your clean food in, and then lift and get stronger and stronger and stronger. Focus on getting increased strength in the five to 30 rep range. All your exercises, great technique, get stronger and watch your body weight. And hopefully you have a coach to help you. But if you don't, you know, if after a month, your body weight hasn't gone up, bump the eating up a little bit. And then it should go up, you know, a kilo a month is really good. And then all of a sudden you're, you're doing super well for yourself and you're without all these complexities. Cause people like to focus. Like people will ask like, you know, should I have 350 grams of carbs for my surplus or 375? Like, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, there's no, you know, what are you preparing for a pro show? Like, no, that's nonsense. Yeah, is the scale moving up? Like, yeah, it moves up every two weeks. Like, you're doing great. Then you're doing great. You're training hard. You're eating well. And also for folks like of that demographic that are just sort of starting out, I would I would really steer them away from uh, eating super clean. I think that just destroys your pleasure. Like some of us nowadays, like I love eating clean because I'm an insane person who's invested my entire life into this. Most people, and me included in many times, it's fun to eat some junk. It's fun to eat some BS. And that stuff helps you grow muscle if you have the protein and calories layered under it. Like if you replace a meal with potato chips, you're not going to get big. If you have your salmon and rice and then after you have a bag of potato chips, you're getting even bigger. Like and every now and again, you get a little fatter. You can always do a mini cut to get rid of the fat. Getting rid of fat is easy. That's another thing I would tell someone is, look, for sure, don't get too fat. But if you get a little pudgy, it's it's super easy to get rid of excess fat. What's difficult is building muscle. So if you never ever get even a little bit pudgy and you always try to stay super lean, you're never gonna get jacked. It's never gonna happen for you. So that's probably something else I would add. Sounds like pretty fucking good advice. Um, let me ask you like how, it just occurred to me because you said like, um, you can basically um, make it harder for yourself by only eating clean food when you're masking. Um, how different is your food uh, selection, like your, your uh, food source selection, in a dieting phase uh, compared to a gaining phase? For me personally? Yeah. Um, so it, during dieting phases, I'd eat like more brown rice and stuff like that. During massing phases, I'd eat more white rice. It's just because you can eat more of it. You know, there's not some magic fat loss secret. Um, and because, you know, massing on brown rice is some kind of sick joke. Like <laughs> you can try it, but I weigh like 230. I mean, like I would be shitting blood if I tried that with a mushroom fiber. Um, I sometimes decrease my vegetable consumption a little bit, but I still keep veggies in when I'm massing. And um, I'll do more shakes like uh, or rather instead of just protein shakes, I'll put carbohydrate like Gatorade in the shakes as well. If I'm really deep into massing, sometimes I'll use a mass gainer shake which actually helps quite a bit because good God, it's really tough to get in uh, 900 grams of carbs, which is as high as I've been massing before. It's a disaster. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, sometimes you, you you have some extra meals there threaded into your diet of still good macros, but that are very easy, very palatable, like frozen yogurt. There's a very high carbohydrate content, 
very glycemic, very good. Have that with a protein shake and all of a sudden you're doing really well. You don't stay full off frozen yogurt for more than about an hour, hour and a half, but that's great because then you can eat again, right? Terrible idea if you're cutting because it just makes you want to have more frozen yogurt as soon as you're done with it. And then cheat meals. I, don't, I never take cheat meals when I'm cutting. I think it's a profoundly stupid idea, at least for myself. And with massing, my usual policy is to have two cheat nights, which is really like a meal and a dessert usually uh, per week. Uh, so usually it's either Thursday and Saturday or Friday and Saturday. Um, and just, uh, you know, have fun with my friends like this, uh, this weekend is going to be my birthday. And so I've got some friends coming over, uh, and we're going to order shitty pizza, uh, from a local shitty pizza place in Philadelphia. And we're going to have pizza, you know? And the thing is, is that prior to that and including that meal, it's all like high protein, great food all the way through the day. And even when I cheat, it's like my idea of a cheat meal is not like I eat three cupcakes and fall asleep. If I have only dessert, I have a protein shake with it. Like they have these mini chocolate cakes at one of the stores here in the in the States. And it's mini by American standards, which means it has like 1,500 calories in it. Um, and uh, I never just have the cake. I have the cake with a protein shake. So all of a sudden, that's like a – actually, the macros are pretty decent, you know. So it's never like – cheating for me is never falling off. It's just eating more tasty food but still hitting all the macros. So those are the big differences. So when I diet – I diet cleaner, so to speak. I don't cheat anymore. More veggies, more fiber, uh, and switch to slower digesting sources that are more filling, generally, of carbohydrates. Sounds good. Um, it sounds like you have the luxury um, of playing with a lot of calories because I think well, – what, what were the like lowest calories uh, in your previous dieting phase just now? 2,700. I guess for you that's kind of low, but still – Very. For most people, um, pretty high. So you can play with, you know, carb sources and stuff. So I think with people who have to go like below the 2000s, very often their their food selection has to change like drastically. They have to sure. load up on veggies as much as they can. And I mean, if you're very active like you are and uh, burn, you know, a bunch of carbs in your uh, two daily uh, weight training sessions plus BJJ, I guess you can get away with a lot more. I can It actually do because. Like I ride my bike, uh, like yeah. when I have uh, personal trainings, I, I take my bike all over the city so I can also afford more. But I think um, for like the more average people in terms of physical activity, they would probably have to get uh, used to the idea of switching a lot of their calorically dense foods to uh, yeah, a lighter version of that. Totally. And also I don't, I don't do very calorically dense food when I mass anyway uh, because I usually don't need to and I want to stay healthy. I don't eat like exclusively macaroni and cheese when I mass or something like that. So I eat mostly just very healthy, similar foods, just a little bit of a trade-off in food composition. Not a whole lot. I actually, during this current sort of mass, uh, very slow mass, one of my carb meals is actually brown rice. Uh, and it's brown rice with a, a whole bag of uh, chopped up broccoli. So it's like a ton of fiber. It's very filling because I'm still rebounding from the diet. So my hunger hasn't quite hit normal. It's a little bit elevated. So meals like that really, really help. But I'm thinking at about two weeks here, I'm going to be over the ent entire idea of eating altogether, which is great because two weeks after that, I start a diet. Sounds like good timing, yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, so going back to like the end of the diet phase, uh, like we know from, from the literature that like a lot of people uh, don't really have huge problems getting weight off, but they do struggle a lot when it comes to keeping it off. And um, that's general population, I guess, for, for bodybuilders. That's not so much the case, although 
uh, I think we can also make a point that after competitions, people who are not really mentally prepared for the, the disastrous time that's going to come after that uh, also can fuck up a lot in, in, that, um, in that direction. Um, but what do you think besides, like we, we also know that like physical activity is one factor that can help um, keep weight off and that doesn't have to be weight training, that can be whatever uh, and probably should be suited to the preference of, of an individual. But do you, can you think of any other good strategies, uh, like speaking broadly again, for people to, to maintain their weight loss? Yeah, I'm not really sure. Just kidding. I wrote a whole book chapter on that. So tons of strategies. One of them is the physical activity increase. I'm wearing a um, step counter. I wear it everywhere I go now. It's the most amazing thing. My friend, uh, my training partner, Charlie, recommended it to me because he was like, dude, let's just get step counters. And I'm like, you're right. And he was more right than ever because I just set a step count for my fat loss phases is 12,000 a day. And right now, because I don't want to regain a ton of fat, it's 8,000. And like, I just look at my step counter right now. I'll tell you exactly what I'm at, 3,364. But it's, it's in the United States. It's only 2.28 p.m. So one 45-minute walk will get me to where I need to be, 8,000 plus. Every day I get 8,000 at least. And that way, it's, it's actually really, really hard to gain a lot of fat when you're very active. People have problems gaining weight when they're active enough. Um, Jared Feather, the uh, actually my bodybuilding coach, um, he had a client, uh, has a client. Uh, his, uh, his name is uh, Mar uh, Marvin Physique on Instagram, like Marvin the Martian, right? He's from Hong Kong. He may be one of the leanest people of all time. We call him the leanest man in Asia because like he got striated glutes to the point that his striations had striations. It was just like it was disconcerting. He had detail in his abs that didn't make any sense because like there was little like little indentations in the veins. And I was like, Marvin, are you going to die? And he's like, I don't know. So he is a personal trainer uh, and fitness coach in Hong Kong and he walks everywhere. And Jared said that Marvin had multiple days during his fat loss diet where he walked 25,000 steps. All right. He never took him below 300 grams of carbs. Marvin only weighs like 150 or 160 pounds. This is like a 70 kilo guy who never went below 300 grams of carbs. This is like in the context of 175 grams of protein and like 40 grams of fat. That's most people's maintenance. He never went below that and got literally lost all of his body fat because of his super high activity. And when he has to gain, it's tough for him to gain because imagine gaining when you're walking 25,000 steps. You're like, I ate so much today. You wake up lighter. You're like, okay. That didn't work. So that that physical activity is great. And the reason I bring up the step tracker is it's so easy after a show or after a hard diet to follow your body's desires and just be like, I'm just going to lay here. It's going to be fine. You start getting lazy. You're already lazy towards the end of your cut. So having a step tracker or something to make sure you do good activity towards the end helps a lot so it doesn't fall and you have a minimum baseline after that. In addition to that, here's the deal. What do you want to eat as soon as your contest diet or your super hard diet is over? The most palatable, high calorie density foods, period. What is the worst idea for you to eat at that point because it will put you into a crazy high surplus? Exactly that. So what you want to do is – this is really crazy advice, but it works really well. You can take one or two cheat meals or take a weekend of cheating, totally fine, after your show, fine. Although for first timers, I wouldn't even really recommend that. Ideally, what you do is if, even if you have one cheat meal, that's debatable. Ideally, what you do is the next day and week, you just bump up the amount of clean food that you're eating. Okay. 
you're not going to be if you're really as hungry as you say, and you probably are. That's going to be great. You're like, thank God, I get double the brown rice. This is heaven, and that makes you happy. And it starts to reduce diet fatigue. But it's going to be very easy to stay full on very still not super impressive calories relative to what you want to eat. After a week of that, you're going to start to heal a little bit psychologically, and you're going to be like, yeah, I could totally eat a ton of sushi and a ton of burgers. But I'm not like going to eat my own hand if it doesn't happen, like I was right after the diet. At that point, you introduce some tastier foods that are still very low in calories. You have some meals of like a ton of fruit, some frozen yogurt, some low-fat snacks, desserts, and treats with high protein. And at that point, you know, you might have lots of protein. You might have two steaks as a cheat meal or something. Like you know, protein doesn't really deposit as fat nearly as much, and you get it makes you full really fast. So at that point, you're like starting to have a few like little sort of not really cheat meals, but just livening it up a little for another week or two. At this point, you're, you've regained some fat a little bit, but not a ton, and you have been eating to be full basically every meal because you're eating so much clean food and so much like, you know, let's say uh, frozen yogurt or something that you're not really like that hungry anymore. And then a month out, you have your first cheeseburger party or pizza party and you have all the stuff you want, but that you know, you'll eat that and you're like, this is amazing. It tastes great. But you might have three cheeseburgers instead of 10. And the next day you're like, oh, those cheeseburgers are good. I'm I'm good, man. I just want to eat clean today because I feel, you know, I don't feel like shit if you eat a lot of junk food. But if this was a month ago, the next day you would be addicted to cheeseburgers and everything else. And you would just try to, you know, supply your hedonic desires as much as possible. So it's, it's kind of, uh, it's sort of that kind of stuff takes the edge off. So you essentially incrementally increase the amount of clean food you're eating, keep the activity high. And in addition to that, and this should go without saying, but it really some, sometimes doesn't, you should still be training hard. Yeah, there should be a deload right before your diet ends or right before your show and, and or after. And then, but after that, you should get back into some hard training because first of all, you're going to look amazing. It's super easy to get motivated when you're super lean and you're eating more carbs. You're veiny as shit. You get crazy pumps. It's one of the most fun times of training is the mass phase right after dieting. Uh, and if you train really hard, not only are you creating a big calorie sink for the food you're eating, but you're potentially putting in place some underlying conditions for muscle growth, which is really great. I think some people, especially in the general population, they'll train hard, they'll diet hard, and then they'll stop training or train way less and then start cheating well that's an easy way to regain a bunch of stuff but if you keep training man there's just not that easy to regain weight and a lot of people struggle with it which is exactly what we want right and i think uh in that context are, are you the one who coined that term the hedonic staircase yes yeah, yeah i really like that idea like i mean it's basically what you laid out in the beginning starting with the same foods pretty much that you were dieting on increasing those and then Slowly, incrementally adding some stuff that you are craving, pretty much, very simply put. 100%. 100%. And it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, it's knowing that if you get the super tasty food and you super crave it, after that, everything seems to be, like, not as great, you know. And then you're just tempted to either be sad or to eat more junk food and that's just a great way to get yourself super fat but if you sort of incrementally raise the the hedonic level of food by the time you get to the highest level it's still the most fun you've had with food but you're not so insane about it and and there is gee there's an actual like 
uh, a situation you can get yourself into if you're very hedonically motivated by food post-contest or post-hard diet. You can actually eat food and not really – you eat it so fast and so frantically that you don't even enjoy it very much. Um, this essentially borders on sort of like binge eating behavior, and that's no fun. And if you're going to binge on anything, it should just be brine rice and chicken. And then you know, waste that because you don't need to taste it because it doesn't taste like anything. And then by the time a month later when you're ready to eat eclairs or cheesecake or burgers, you can really enjoy the shit out of one of those. You know, I've seen – I've eaten a burger after a contest prep or hard diet where I was like, I don't even remember eating it. I just remember going, that's it, and it was gone. So might as well get the best out of everything. Yeah. Cool. Um, I think uh, there, there was one thing I was going to address in, in terms of um, dieting psychology and motivation um, at a conference in Amsterdam. I think it was the Human Performance Conference in 2017, the first one they had there. Um, you had a talk on, I think it was actually called Dieting Psychology, I'm not sure, 101 probably, uh, something like that. And um, you spent a good uh, portion of time talking about the role of motivation within the dieting psychology in these six phases. I'm not sure if you If you're also the one who came up with those phases, also are correct. you? Yeah. Yeah. I, I come maybe, up with a lot of shit. Uh, It's all make believe. Yeah, right? you do. And I think a lot of it is really, really useful. Like, um, I think some people make it out as if, well, you know, uh, these guys are getting lost in the details, focusing on this nerd shit, and, you know, they're not, not trading hard. And, like, yeah, except I'm bigger not, and stronger than all those guys. Agree. They, they um, shit my face. <laughs> agree. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Can, can you like maybe just briefly walk us through those six phases and how they usually sure. occur? And yeah. Let me see if I remember that shit. Um, so basically you start off with inspiration and a lot of people mistake that for being very valuable and it's not. Inspiration is when you like see someone get in shape for a movie role and you walk out of the theater and you're like, I want to get in shape. The thing is that lasts about like the night. And then the next day you wake up and you're like, I don't really give a shit. That was a stupid movie. I don't want to look like Chris Hemsworth, right? So inspiration can is a very useful in getting kicking you into something, but it's not going to last. The next is motivation. Motivation is like a less intense feeling, but it's a drive to really want to succeed and do what you do. Motivation is great. The problem with motivation is that it waxes and wanes. Right. There's times where you're really motivated enough to diet and do all the things you're going to do. And then there's low points. You know, motivation sometimes waxes and wanes over an hour. Sometimes it's days. Sometimes it's weeks. It's all these pulsatile cycles. So on a down phase, you might not be motivated to do anything, which is where intention takes over. Intention is motivation is I want to lose weight. Intention is, okay, what am I actually trying to do here? What is the minimum level of compliance that I have to do? Like there's tons of – intention is the ultimate uh, adult uh, concept because children are motivated to do all sorts of things, but then, then they're not because motivation waxes and wanes and it goes away. And then they're like, eh, I don't feel like doing this. Adults understand that there are things they committed themselves to, so they have to do. Intention is like, I will train once today. I will eat all of my meals, and I will not eat any other meals that are not programmed. If you, Even if you're not motivated, you sort of look at your intention list, and you're like, I guess I'm going to do that. Intention is an amazing tool, but it's 
it's it's powerless because you can always look at your shit and go fuck that i don't care i'm not going to do that which is where uh willpower has to come in or, or it's willpower is used via the concept of sort of discipline right like discipline is you have your intention right without an intention how are you even supposed to be disciplined imagine you're motivated you're like i need discipline like discipline to do what you're like i don't know i don't have a distinct plan so the intention is having a distinct plan very important after that, you apply discipline, which is the the application of willpower. When your motivation is low, willpower fills it in. Now, you can't. Willpower is a finite tool. It gets drained, and then you don't have any more. But the good news is, motivation does this anyway. And the more you practice these things, and here's the real big kicker: as you go through these cycles of high and low motivation, you fill them in with you know with you know your intention is always here. This is what has to be done. Motivation sometimes high enough, sometimes not, and you have to use discipline to fill in the gaps your, with willpower. Okay, sweet. And then you think, okay, like so it's a struggle forever. That's true. But as you accumulate enough time doing that. A uh, super powerful motivational or super powerful sort of adherence factor, I guess these are adher factors for adherence because motivation is just one of them, um, is habit, right? It, it, habit means that your motivation, instead of doing this, uh, your motivation does this. And that's actually like, you know, it just never falls that low anymore. And it's actually just, just quite easy to exert yourself because the stuff just doesn't, you don't even have to use that much willpower. Like how much willpower does a first time dieter have to use to make brown rice and eat it when they want, you know, um, macaroni and cheese, everything, right? But then like, you've been dieting for a year. They're like, so is it hard to eat all this brown rice? And you're like, what? Like, I don't know, I guess I don't want to get up off my chair and go get it. But like once I do is everything is automated, right? Like someone can say like, is it, you know, alien who like uses a ball system to get around could be like, your legs are moving. Is it hard to walk? You're like, no, it's not hard to walk. Like, why not? Like, well, you know, sometimes you're tired, but once you start walking, it just kind of happens, right? So habit is a huge tool. And we always say at RP, that getting to habit may be just a way of describing so much of the adherence process that we could just title it getting the habit. Because once you get someone to habit, which usually in dieting seems to take about four to six weeks, once you get people to habit, man, it's the whole thing so much easier. And the survival rate that people that actually succeed in their diets is sky high. But some people don't make it to, most people don't make it to habit. Look at New Year's resolution, right? In Germany in a year, there's gonna be New Year's and then who's gonna come to the gym? Fucking everybody. How many of those people last more than four to six weeks? Oh my God, dude. It's like, you would think there's another pandemic if you just looked at gyms. You're like, where did all these people go? And you're like, well, they just, you know, they never got to habit. But once you're lifting as habitual for you, just like dieting, it's like you just kind of do it, right? And then eventually, if your habits are very well ingrained and you like the process, you see internal success from it that you really like, you like both the act of doing most of the things included in dieting, for example, and you like the results and the social world around you approves of what you're doing, there's a chance that that can sort of transmutate into passion. And passion is the last of these concepts. Once you have passion, there's no need for any of this stuff to exist because you seek it out it's like being like all right how can we get a sex addict to have sex it's like what you have to do everything you can to not get them to have sex if you just let them into the wild they just go have sex right so it's it's passion is in that way you know a super super awesome thing 
what I have to say about that really quick is a lot of fitness fanatics, personal trainers, folks like myself and yourself that help other people with their fitness, of course you and I are passionate. We're psychotic. This is our career, right? The, a lot of folks who are in this career, like you and I, will assume that passion is the goal for everyone, realistically, and it's not. Um, and they'll also assume that passion is like the first thing you got to try to be working on. They'll be like doing medicine ball tosses and they're like, come on, let's get some passion going. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Just get them to not hate it. Congratulate them on doing it pretty well. And once you build the medicine ball throwing into a habit, they're going to be like, okay, this is fun. And then if, it's, if they're good at it, if they really like it, eventually it's passion. But passion is sometimes not something you can really help someone with. It's something they have to come to. It's like falling in love. You don't choose to fall in love. If all the right conditions are there, you might be falling in love more likely. But it's not something you're like, all right, just do it. Right? So a lot of times coaching passion is, is really stupid. And it's funny because like half of all the Instagram personal trainers are like, I'm going to give you a passion for fitness. Like, well, fuck out of here. No, you're not. Right? That's a nonsense idea. What you're going to do is set all the conditions up, preferably for habits to form. Once habits form, you can set up an awesome, positively reinforcing environment to welcome someone in if they want to become passionate. But if they don't, no big deal. Uh, and then the last thing I'll say is a lot of people, regular folks, can do an entire lifestyle of fitness without ever being passionate about it. Are you passionate about brushing your teeth? I hope much. not, because that's fucking weird. You're like, I love this. Ah! The dentist is like, you're brushing your gums off. You got to stop brushing your teeth. Like, never. Right? You're not passionate about brushing teeth, but do you brush your teeth regularly? Of course you do, because you're a grown up and you're in the habit of brushing your teeth. You've been brushing your teeth since you were six years old. Aliens can come down and say, hey, it's brushing your teeth. That's really hard. You're like, not really. And they can, but you got to get all the stuff. And aren't you worried you'll miss something? You're like, I've been doing it for such a long time. It just, it's just kind of automatic, right? So if you can get people to take that attitude with fitness, the businessman who works in Munich, you know, and takes the train or whatever, he might not be in love with lifting weights with you three times a week, but like he does it and it's fine and it's great. And it's just something he does. His buddies will be like, hey, you want to go, go to a crazy, you want to go to Berlin and go to one of those crazy psycho Berlin bars? I know how you guys do over there in Germany. Berlin's like world's number one party. If you want a crazy party, Berlin's the place to go. And he's going to be like, yeah. you know what? <laughs> That's right. And then like he, he's going to be like, you know what? I would. I'd love that. But let's go on the weekend because I've got a Thursday session with my trainer. And they'd be like, really? Like, like you must be really motivated. But he's going to be like, am I? You know, it's just something I do every Thursday. You know, it's in my calendar. It's super. It's just obvious now. And so that's where I think we want most folks to be. Great. I really love that concept. It's really, really elegant way of laying it out. And, and if you don't know anything about it, I think this gives you an idea of where the journey could go along. And what I would like maybe maybe add or just like throw in, throw into the room with this concept is uh, with the passion part. I would say like I'm not sure if you've read um, James Clear's Atomic Habits because he talks about this concept that you know habits uh, form and they like kind of go over or can if you if you apply them long enough go over into your identity. So mm -hmm. you don't even necessarily have to be passionate about it. You just have to uh, identify with the habit or with the behavior that you actually want to do and that already greatly increases the chances of you like um doing it long term totally because that's who you are if someone's like why are you doing this you're like i don't, I don't know it's just what exactly. i do yeah that's uh, actually that was like pretty much what i talked about uh with eric helms uh on, on the last episode we talked about yeah the whole motivation and habit uh relationship so to speak Totally. And People I think greatly like, overvalue motivation and undervalue habits typically. 100%. 100%. And like maybe just to like conclude the whole dieting chapter, um, am I right or would, would you um, oppose the idea that 
like dieting, if you do it right with, with a certain, um, you know, a, a rational structure, maybe like an evidence-based approach, it should become easier over time, assuming you're starting at a slightly overweight place or maybe even very overweight place, it should become easier. Uh, the only the only situation where it's definitely not going to become easier over time is when you're doing uh, a contest, contest prep diet where you're dieting down to, yeah, basically uh, non, non-human body fat levels uh, around yeah. three to six where you, you're going to feel like shit regardless of uh, how much you're eating. Like even if you're sure. eating 4,000 calories a day at 5% body fat, you're going to feel like shit. Sure. I can actually answer this question very, very, very precisely. Uh, dieting to any given level of body fat gets easier the more times you do it. The thing with contest dieting is that, that the first condition is no longer correct because you want to get leaner every single time. Um, but once you have reached sort of peak leanness, like there's a level of leanness beyond which going further just isn't realistic. Um, John Meadows, for example, you're familiar with John Meadows, the bodybuilder. Sure. He's been that lean. He, John's been so lean that it's just, you look at a picture of him, you're like, what the hell? Something's wrong with you, man. Something You need to go eat a cheeseburger now because you're probably going to die real soon at this rate. And the thing is, once you get that level of lean, John, I've had a personal conversation with John Meadows where he says, honestly, contest dieting is just not that hard for me anymore. I can get lean unbelievably quickly. My body's super responsive to it. He's like, if push came to shove, I could probably get in contest shape in six weeks. Uh, and I was like, holy crap, <laughs> right? But like, and he's in his mid forties. He also says like the older you get uh, into the into your forties, the easier it is to just get lean and stay lean. Um, and getting crazy lean again, is just not that hard if you've done it before. So I'd say for someone who gets a 10% body fat six pack, or like really clean six pack for the first time, gee, that's gonna be tough, right? Then they're gonna go back up to 15. Let's say they came from 20%. Then they go back to 10, they're gonna be like, man, that wasn't that tough. The third time they go back to 10, they're gonna like, honestly stay at like 10 to 12% body fat the rest of my life, and they're completely correct. But most people don't do that. They go 10, and they go eight, and then they go six, and they're like, dieting never gets easier. Like, yeah, but you keep looking more amazing. You know, launching the, the space program never got easier, but they started with launching a piece of shit toaster that emits radio waves and goes around the world to launching like an entire space station like yeah if you keep upping the scales right now if we want to launch a satellite the equivalent of uh, sputnik the first satellite it would be like you could probably do it for like twenty five thousand dollars out of your backyard <laughs> so it definitely gets easier just like dieting but we tend to elevate the scales all the time and and real quick that's another thing to keep in mind because we, this is a dieting psychology discussion that we're having it's really easy to uh so there's a, there's a concept in psychology called like the hedonic treadmill where like uh the faster you walk the faster the treadmill spins so like if, if you think that you know banging the hottest hookers in the world and doing heroin is going to be the greatest fun you've ever had uh the first time you do it it'll probably be unbelievable the second time you do it you'll probably be a little bit more used to it after about a month of it you're going to be a rock star and what a rock star is what's the next logical this is super fucking politically incorrect i yeah. hope this is okay uh what's the next step in rock stardom after banging the hottest hookers in the world and doing heroin suicide right because you just like ran out of shit to do and you just can't be happy and those a lot of times people get on that treadmill to seek the happiness that's missing from some deep place inside but the same way that there's a hedonic staircase and we have to know this, like you'd be like, man, when I get a BMW, my life will truly be good. Like that's not true. There are things you can do that make you happier, but just be cognizant of the fact that don't subconsciously let this next step be like, okay, but if I do this, then I'll be happy. If I do this, just be aware of the fact that there's some play there. Just the same way in dieting, we have, you know, we reach a new appearance and we start taking it for granted. And then we start saying, no, 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 I'm not in shape. Um, I'm like really just whatever average and I need more. And then you're never happy. You never really reflect and really enjoy yourself. Um, I try to make sure I'm pretty egotistical to begin with. So it's relatively easy for me. 
but I get down on myself and I'm saying I ain't shit. I've never been lean. But then like every now and again, I'll get a crazy pump in the gym or currently at home and I'll take a picture or something. Or I'll look in the mirror and I'm like, dude, I look like a fucking human tank. This is amazing. I did it. I succeeded. I love looking like this. I'm so proud of myself. And it's okay to feel those things where some people, the reason they say dieting never gets easier and it doesn't even make them happier is because they keep setting these next bars for themselves. Like, like a lot of these people are unbelievable shape. Like you'll talk to bodybuilders and be like, you're in great shape. And they're like, well, I didn't do so well at my last show. Like that's not what I'm saying, fucking idiot. I'm saying you look like a god. I don't care that you got beat by other gods, you know, like – and sometimes not letting yourself feel that, not letting yourself be okay with all the progress you've made is really shooting yourself in the foot. Makes a lot of sense. Okay, cool. Um, we don't have too much time left, but a little bit and maybe – or I'd like to go into uh, the training side of things a little bit more. Why don't we do another whole podcast where we'll just talk about the training side? If you'll that have me. Good. I just oh, yeah. invited myself on another podcast. <laughs> what a rude <laughs> asshole. Uh, you said you're egotistical, so you know that fits into the picture. So totally. I'm, I'm cool with that. Exactly. No, we can definitely make that happen. Um, yeah. Maybe just like one or two short follow-up okay. questions. That's cool. great. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, this is like a random question, but I'm just – curious to see what you what you say to that um are there any topics and what would those be where you have changed your opinion on um fitness related topics in the last five years like you know big topics yeah i used to think that uh training all the way up to your mrv and staying there as long as possible was a good idea uh i think it's a fine idea but it's not the best idea i think going from Uh, and I used to think that training at uh, around minimum effective volume for any length of time was a stupid waste of time. And uh, during the volume debate and other interactions we had, Eric Helms had uh, purged me of that idea. Uh, I think he presented his points very eloquently and it led me to reconsider. Eric and I still vastly disagree on a lot of volume concepts, of course, which I think I'm correct and I think he's wrong. But I always respect his opinion greatly and I think that um, – You know, maybe maybe there's something to it. Uh, another thing I've changed my mind on is the utility of higher frequency training, higher, not very high, for uh, folks that are advanced and very, very large and strong, such as myself. Um, uh, the best growth I've gotten recently has been through training a muscle group three times a week, whereas before that I was training muscle groups two times a week and even sort of, I would say, one and a half times a week, which is when I would train one hard session and one much easier session. Uh, and I got those ideas uh, of training more frequently from Meta Henselman's, who's actually a very good friend of mine, and uh, James Krieger, who is just uh, amazing, and I would uh, highly recommend people get at his work. Uh, Menno on the theoretical side and uh, Krieger on the summoning up a bunch of the data together and saying, look, you know, there's maybe something to say about slightly higher training frequency every now and again. Uh, Greg Knuckles, in addition to that, presented some really good research. So I would say that those are two areas. Nowadays, my training ranges from minimum effective volume all the way up to maximum recoverable, sort of in a stepwise manner. Uh, and in addition to that, my frequency opinions are – uh, here's actually another much bigger change. I used to think the training frequency was set in stone, that you should find your optimal frequency and stay there. I actually think that frequency periodization is a concept that can be valuable, and I've described it quite well in a variety of lecture series at this point. And the ongoing uh, – the currently in editing hypertrophy book has a really great discussion on what sort of frequency progression you could get um, – Uh, you know, during a block of training, three successive mesocycles of hypertrophy training, there may be a real good case for slightly elevating frequency every single time. Um, so I think those are some ideas that if I had known that I would think this three years ago, I'd been like, oh man, like, fuck, guess I was wrong. So. Cool. 
Yeah, I actually uh, had a similar opinion on um, the MEV and MRV concept and where you're supposed to train. Not 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 based on any evidence, but more like a, an intuitive approach. And I've actually, yeah, um, also refrained from that and gotten more into, or I've gotten to appreciate the MEV training uh, as well, because, yeah, I mean, you can make a lot of good gains there, but yeah. yeah uh, I don't easy really gains, easiest gains you'll ever make. <laughs> yeah, exactly. At low fatigue. Um, so uh, another question I had, have you been able to read into Brad Schoenfeld's new book, um, the, the new edition of the, um, it's called The Science uh, and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy, I think. Yes, I, I have a copy of it, and I have not been able to dig into it yet because I've unfortunately been so busy. Uh, with other projects, actually, I'm involved on with, with Brad, uh, but I will be reading it very shortly. I have read the first edition, uh, so why, what's up? Is there a specific question you would like to ask me about? Not really, but also, like, are there were there any, or... I mean, you haven't read it, but like new insights or is there anything, obviously there's not going to be anything groundbreaking like, oh, you know, uh, metabolic stress is bullshit, like completely or, you know, so it's, um, it's definitely and throw that out the window. Or, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, right. No, like, that's right. You don't actually need to train hard is lie number one of the book. Um, it's just a list of anabolic compounds that you need to order from the website. So uh, 900 pages. I know it's crazy. I didn't even know there were that many drugs. <laughs> So um, I would uh, highly recommend the second edition over the first edition because uh, having com many conversations with Brad, I know what's in the second edition, even though I haven't taken the time to read it fully yet. Um, since the first edition was published, there has been, I would say, roughly a doubling of the pertinent literature on the subject, which is insane. But the number of studies addressing things like volume, things like frequency, things like exercise selection, things like training to failure, have just, it was just insane. This last two years has just been a wellspring. It's going to be nothing compared to the next two years. Everyone's getting in on this stuff. So uh, there's much more nuance in that new book. And just the comprehensive level of detail that you can get is way, way higher. When Brad publishes the third edition in two or three years from now, it's going to be the one you want to own. It's one of these things where it's like, you know, if you, if you get a book on basic biochemistry, like, look, there's just not a lot of shit is changing in basic biochem, right? You can get the book once every five years, once every 10, and it's going to be roughly the same. If you learned your biochemistry from a book in the 1990s, you're, you're probably still real sharp. Like if you know it front to back, like you can be hired at a pharmaceutical company, no problem, and do super well. With uh, muscle hypertrophy science, the literature is so, so evolving that uh, every two or three years, you're going to want the latest guide, which Brad Schoenfeld's book is. Yeah, and I think uh, relating to that, um, we can like slowly get into the end of the podcast. And I think uh, talking about um, research in the, in the field of muscle hypertrophy, you guys at RP um, are actually very generous and uh, donate to, I don't know how many research labs, but you've donated several times. And I think, you know, I commend you for that. And uh, thank you. Like, it's really cool that you support it in that way and like push, push the field forward in that, in that manner. Well, thanks so much, man. Yeah, like we uh, we actually give every year to somewhere between five and ten laboratories, um, and it's a lot of my hard-earned money. God damn it! I want to spend that money on my own shit. Why the hell we're we giving it away? I don't know. Um, I don't even well, like you want to get more jack. You want to get more jack even even more. It's actually super greedy of us. Uh, I will say, like you know, we say like our motto is science is stronger. We really do believe that. Uh, we're uh, not giving back to science, we're paying forward to science because we're going to be using all these scientific advancements. We read all the literature that comes out. We need it. It's like a selfish investment that luckily helps a bunch of other people too, which we have no problem with. But yeah, legit, like, thank you so much for, but but it, fundamentally, it, it, there's no, like, 
there's no trick here. There's no trick play. It's it's we all need the science, so we're gonna pay for the science we need. Plain and simple. Cool. And then maybe could you just like um, briefly touch on kind of what the book that you're uh, that's being edited right now, what that's gonna be on exactly, and who should look out for that? Totally. Yeah. So uh, scientific principles of hypertrophy training will be coming out towards the end of this year, 2020, and it's gonna be just like scientific principles of strength training. Uh, except for hypertrophy. So it's going to be the principles all laid out, specificity, uh, overload, fatigue management, so on and so forth, and describing what they mean, how they relate to hypertrophy, and then specific science-based, theory-based recommendations. Um, I would say it's my great work anyway so far. And uh, myself and uh, James Hoffman and Jared Feather have put a lot of time into the book. Dr. Melissa Davis is currently editing it. It's going to be one hell of a book, and it's going to answer a trillion questions and get a ton of people thinking. Um, it does present what I think amounts to pretty close to a sort of a unified field theory of hypertrophy, uh, which is going to be super awesome. So um, I've already put out a ton of content about the book on YouTube and all these videos and RP+. So some of the people are going to read it and they're going to be like, wow, this is great, but I've heard some of this stuff before. But the very specific definitions, the very particulars, uh, how to design programs, that's all going to be in there. And it's going to be it's going to be a thing. Sounds amazing. I'm definitely going to check that out. Super. Cool. Um, just one more little thing. I want to give you a recommendation. This is kind of a weird thing to do, uh, but I figured why not? Uh, I know that you um, enjoy partaking in psychedelic experiences every now and then. And um, from what I've heard, it's just more like a recreational thing and you, you enjoy it. But I thought like if you, and I actually personally have never really tried uh, any psychedelics, but I plan to and I want to be kind of informed before I do it. So I'm reading okay. a book by Michael Pollan. It's called How to Change Your Mind, The New Science of Psychedelics. Woo! Um, he's an author. Uh, he's, he's pretty famous. He's published uh, several books I've before. I've heard of him. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm not through with the book yet, but I can already highly recommend it. Um, so if you ever want to dig deeper into the psychedelic side All right. and uh, know what it's used for, like in terms of the, the medical field, because they sure. are, there seems to be some utility uh, over there, um, you should definitely check that out. Awesome. Thanks for the recommendation. I'm going to give that some thought. Cool, man. Thanks so much for coming on. It was a great honor. Um, I hope, like, I definitely learned a bunch of things. I hope uh, everyone listening, watching uh, did the same. Um, thanks for your time. And, Thank you so uh, much for having me. All right, that was the discussion on dieting psychology with Dr. Mike Isretel. I hope you could take something away from it. I think we touched on a bunch of topics and points that might help anyone who's getting into this. If you're interested in what Mike provides, um, I would urge you to check out the YouTube channel of Renaissance Periodization. They're posting a bunch of videos on a regular basis right now. Um, you should check out Mike's Instagram, uh, RP Dr. Mike, small, one word. And yeah, I think those are probably the best places to start. If you want to listen to podcasts, just type in his name into whatever podcast app you're um, listening on and you'll find a lot of episodes. Um, and yeah, um, I hope you liked what you heard. Um, I hope you could take something away from it. If that's the case, I would highly appreciate if you could take a minute of your time to drop me a uh, like and a comment on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, or whatever app um, or program you're listening on. That would be really, really appreciated since I'm just starting out and I'm trying to get some type of feedback um, in order to improve on my skills.
So, if you have any questions, just hit me up and the next episode should be out pretty soon. Till then, take care.